0: Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karma Texum Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. This week's Dharma Talk is entitled, Finding Love in the Well of Emptiness, by Lama Kathy Wesley. When people hear Buddhist teachings on emptiness, that things in the world are at their root impermanent and do not exist in the way we think they do, they sometimes feel an inner tug of sadness, wondering how to be in a world pervaded by impermanence. The teachings of Kempo Tsultram Jomso Rinpoche, given in Columbus in 2007, help us see that emptiness has compassion for a heart, and impermanence can help us live life to the fullest. If you like our Dharma Talk series, please consider donating to Columbus Karma Teksum Choling at ColumbusKTC.org. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Hi and good morning. Uh, this is Lama Kathy uh, speaking to you on behalf of the Columbus Karma Taksam Choling Tibetan Buddhist Meditation Center in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, let's see uh, today. Uh, The topic is uh, finding love in the well of emptiness. I I have to say it is a weird title. I understand that it's a, a, and it's one of those things where I tried to think several different ways of talking about it in the title (laughs) and having the journalism degree helps sometimes, but not always. So I came up with this um, title of finding love in the well of emptiness without exactly knowing how I was going to work the well into it. But stay tuned. I think we got it figured out. So first of all, I want to say uh, I hope all of you are doing well and uh, and that uh, you are able to practice uh, some prayer meditation in your daily life and uh, that you can join us on the weekends if you have some time uh, on our Zoom uh, meditations on Sunday mornings. All right. When we talk about the topic uh, of uh, Buddhist teachings in general. Uh, a lot of folks do relate to Buddhist teachings almost instantly. I've had people tell me that when they uh, first read about Buddhist teachings, they're kind of excited because they didn't know that anybody else thought the same way they thought, or felt the same way they felt, or believed the same thing that they believed. And many people say the words, uh, I feel like I'm home now, that I've started studying. And buddhism and practicing meditation so uh in any case uh i think that because people feel this um familiarity and this feeling of home when they come to dharma practice it's um it's a sign that they have a resonance with the buddhist teachings so a lot of people immediately resonate with and relate to buddhist teachings and uh They love the idea of uh, the Buddhist ethics, which is based on not harming oneself or others. They like Buddhist meditation, which is based on getting to know your own mind through the practice of meditation. They read uh, the, the Buddha's book of sayings, the Dhammapada. And in the first lines, the Buddha explains his entire philosophy by saying, we are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. And with our thoughts, we make the world. So uh, this is very resonant for people. And the Four Noble Truths, the very first teaching that the Buddha gave, also resonate. They strike a chord. The Buddha said, suffering is part of life that's the first noble truth that no matter where you go no matter who you are suffering is part of your life you can try to run and you can try to cover things over but you uh, will always experience some suffering in this imperfect and confused world that we have and the second is that this suffering has a cause and the cause is not external it's not the boss it's not the next door neighbor The cause of suffering is our own attachments, clingings, fixations. And of all of these clingings and fixations to people and things and situations and ideas, all of these clingings come down to one thing, clinging to our concept of who we think we are, clinging to the idea of self. And so so as a result, we suffer. Continuously, because um, as long as we have self-fixation, we're going to have some measure of suffering in our life. But the good news about this is that suffering may be a bad thing and suffering, but suffering has a cause, and that causes fixation. So technically, suffering has a solution because we can let go of all of this clinging and fixation and, um, and so on. We can let go of all of that. That's the solution. But how do we let go? How do we actually let go of clinging and fixation? And that the Buddha taught in the fourth noble truth, which consisted of his eightfold noble path. Now, uh, not everybody can remember the eightfold noble path. So the Buddha gave a four, uh, a one, two, three, four line uh, summary of them. He said, do no harm whatsoever whatsoever practice virtue as much as you can and tame your mind. This is the teaching of the Buddha. And since that last statement is just a summary that leaves, do no harm, practice virtue and tame your mind. And so doing no harm means to not harm yourself, not harm others to practice virtue as much as possible means to take care of yourself and benefit others. And the last one is, uh, to tame your mind through the practice of meditation. So people resonate with all of those teachings. They resonate with the Four Noble Truths. They resonate with the path. They resonate with all of this. um, And they can, uh, likewise, be thrilled by what I feel is the most succinct statement of the Buddhist teachings that exists. And this is a quotation attributed to the Buddha himself. Where the buddha said if you want to study my teachings study and practice my teachings you don't have to study and practice many teachings you only have to study and practice one teaching that's a relief by the way if you've ever seen the number of books that have been published about buddhism it's really nice to know that the buddha himself said there is a short summary anyway um if you want to study and practice my teachings, you only need to study and practice one thing. And what is that? It is love and compassion. He said, whoever has, possesses love and compassion has all of the qualities of the Buddha right in the palm of their hand, meaning they're right handy. They're right handy and they have them now. So I feel like if we study the the teachings of Buddha, and we study the teachings of meditation, it gives us a great deal to, to, to work with. And so it, people get thrilled by all of these things. And But there is a problem that sometimes arises for, for people, even if they have a great interest in Buddhism, <laughs> because all of the teachings and the, the practice of meditation and so on are very straightforward until you get, to emptiness. Emptiness is kind of a problem for many people who study Buddhism. It's like they're cruising along the highway in their car, and suddenly they lose attention, and they skim over into the guardrail, and they go back on the road. <laughs> They've just been through something that's a little bit scary, but they're safe. So this is, I think, what happens when people come into contact with the teachings of emptiness. Uh, They kind of crash into into something they didn't anticipate finding. Uh, And while they generally bounce back right on the highway of the main highway of Buddhism, they are a little bit rattled by their experience. And they read, and how do they come in contact with teachings about the Buddhist teachings about emptiness? They um, Maybe they read or hear someone reciting the Heart Sutra, where the Buddha, uh, through the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara, says, all things are empty by nature. Then they recite this uh, formula that many of you will have heard. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form, there is no other form than emptiness, there is no other emptiness than form. This, um, never mind that in this text, uh, the Buddha through Avalokiteshvara is talking about the five heaps or skandhas or factors that make up our self-concept. Our self-concept, the Buddha said, is not a unitary thing. The Buddha argued against the idea of a material soul. He said, no, no, no. Our experience of ourselves is not due to a a material soul. It's due to all of these factors, form, feeling, perception, mental formation, and consciousness. He compared our experience uh, not as a material being, but rather as a stream of being, Our mind, he said, was a stream of being that has the capacity to know and to experience and to actually know and experience itself, which is how Buddhahood is accomplished. That's how the historical Buddha, Shakyamuni, gained his enlightenment through understanding that he had a stream of being and coming to know it deeply through the practice of meditation. So so, anyway... The idea here is that often when we hear the word emptiness, we think uh, about zero or nothingness. We think about nihilism and all of the scary uh, ideas that come from nihilism. And so it's kind of like we're a little rattled by hearing it. So I thought it would be good to talk today about this word. What is emptiness? And if it's the nature of everything, how do we make sense of all of the other teachings of the Buddha? How do we make sense out of those? How do we make sense out of ethics, morality, meditation, and so on, if everything is of the nature of emptiness? And uh, and then after all that, after we understand all that, how do we need to be in the world? How should we be in the world? Knowing that emptiness is the nature of all things. How, how do we relate to others? How, do we, how should we be in this world? So I figured, you know, easy topic, right? Not so, not so easy. But I, uh, I wanted to at least uh, give, uh, give my uh, best effort into explaining this. So when we hear the word emptiness, it is kind of like looking down over the edge of a well into the darkness. And it seems kind of vacant and endless and a little bit lost, a little lonely and kind of scary. But our teacher, Kempo Kartha Rinpoche, said you don't have to feel that way. He says it's natural to feel that way, but you don't have to feel that way. It doesn't have to be scary. It doesn't have to be uh, vacant or lonely to think about and understand emptiness. He said it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, when Kimball Karthar Rinpoche first started explaining emptiness to us, he preferred to begin by explaining emptiness as impermanence. You remember that the Buddha taught that everything is impermanent. Nothing that is material or composite lasts forever. And so uh, nothing lasts forever. Nothing. All conditioned phenomena fall apart. And so he taught two things. He taught impermanence and he taught interdependence. Impermanence means that nothing lasts forever. And interdependence is that things may have a relative existence, but they don't necessarily exist in the way we think they do. So everything's impermanent and everything exists, but not exactly in the way we think they do. So instead of talking about emptiness, let's talk about impermanence and interdependence. So we start. let's start with uh, outer phenomena, this room the trees outside. Those things are composite. They're made up of smaller and smaller and smaller parts. And even inside the atoms and molecules of a material phenomena, there's little electrons whizzing around. And there are portions of these atoms and molecules that are decaying even as everything is spinning around. So, nothing lasts forever. Everything is in a state of flux and change. Uh, the uh, they, if you see old buildings from the 1700s or 1800s, sometimes you'll see uh, little rivulets in the in or or movements in the in the glass. They look it, it looks like it's melting. Well, what that is, is it's actually that the glass is slowly changing its shape and decomposing in front of our eyes. And so as a result, over 100 or 200 years, we can see that that glass that looks like it's a solid material thing isn't actually so solid and isn't so material. And in fact, is decomposing right in front of our eyes. We have an easier way Of thinking about that when we look in the mirror, you know, I looked in the mirror this week and I just keep seeing gray hair, you know. And so uh, I'm a human being and human beings show their age by their hair getting gray or thin or changing in some way or shape or form. And the wrinkles and everything that forms on our faces, all of these things show us that time is marching on. Time is moving on and that we're changing with it. Nothing stays the same. And so the um, and so impermanence we can relate to. So because things are impermanent, that means that clinging to them doesn't really make any sense because they're actually going to change. And especially clinging to them as being unchanging, that is uh, that's irrational. If we look at it, we're na- naturally we're human and we would like to have everything be stable and the same. So we project the idea of permanence onto things. We just project it because it helps us feel safer. But things really are always changing. And not only are they changing, they're all interdependent and are moving in relationship to each other all the time. So when Buddha taught about interdependence, he used um, simple examples like there is no long without short. There is no um, large without small. In other words, things exist only in a relative way, and they, re- they exist only because of causes and conditions that come together that facilitate them being here. I could make a joke and say that uh, the table that is next to me here, this table, is only here because of causes and conditions. Somebody, you know, the tree grew, somebody harvested the tree, somebody planed the wood. All of these things uh, that we see here as this table are here because of causes and conditions. And that if those causes and conditions were not there, the table wouldn't be here, at least not the way it looks now. So this means also the idea of interdependence means that nothing creates itself. Yes, the tree grew from a, a a a seed, and the seed was dropped by another tree, and so forth. There's this and there's this sense of continuity, but the tree did not begin all by itself. It began in connection with other things. Even the teachings of uh, scientific teachings on evolution follow rules that make evolution sound very much like the Buddha's teaching. On the stream of being, that our mind is a stream of being rather than a material soul. And so, this idea of mind being a stream uh, is is in some ways supported by uh, science. In fact, yesterday someone told me they're still studying how consciousness works. They're trying to get there by science. I hope they make it because it would be really cool to see them find that. But meanwhile, we have to cope. So, If we look at the teachings of the Buddha, the teachings are saying things, all of these things around us, have a relative existence, but they ultimately don't exist the way we think they do. Everything is slowly decaying in front of our eyes. In fact, our body slowly decaying in front of our eyes, our feelings continuously changing, happy, sad miserable etc our perceptions are continuously changing how we perceive things are continuously changing why because the mental formations of our habits and so on are always changing and the and why is that always changing because our consciousness is a stream of being and continues to move So in this way, um, we have a a perfect situation to understand emptiness without using the word emptiness. We can understand that things are empty of solidity, empty of permanence, and so on. So in that way, we can use empty to mean that a a thing does not have or possess permanence it is empty of permanence it is empty of this and that so it all comes back to the buddha's deep understanding of the nature of the human mind and the nature of mind in general he said that we all have a mind that has the potential to awaken to its own nature we all have that we all possess that he said there's no being sentient being in this world that doesn't possess the potential to be a buddha because this mind has the capacity to know itself and to know itself completely one could argue that snails might not have the capacity to meditate and recognize the nature of mind however i'm not leaving that out of the equation for the moment it's actually possible i think it's theoretically possible likelihood maybe not so much but The thing that gives me the most, um, I guess you could say the most hope when I think about the teachings on impermanence and interdependence is that if things are impermanent and if things are interdependent, that means that the mind and experience and personality of any being can gradually be changed. They can gradually be changed. So, it, our mind is not a river of concrete. It's a, it's this, uh, this moving river, of uh, of being from one place to another. You remember that phrase: "You can't put your foot in the same river twice." That's kind of what we're getting at here. This stream of being flows through time, and is always. The stream of being that we have flows through time, and it's always picking up things and discarding things, picking up ideas and discarding ideas, picking up habits and discarding habits, and it's always learning, developing, changing, and evolving. The fact that we are not the person we were yesterday Literally, not the person we were yesterday. I mean, not just because pieces of our skin have fallen off, but also that some of our thoughts and ideas have actually changed since yesterday. So the fact that we are not the person we were yesterday is actually good news. If we look back at where we are today, having practiced some meditation and studied some spiritual life, if we look at where we are today and we look back at where we were before, normally and usually we will find some change, that there has been some positive change. There has been some positive evolution. And I think that this, for me, shows that evolution is happening all the time anyway, and we may as well just get with it and start to practice Better habits that give us more peace of mind and practice better self-care and practice better uh, ideas, thoughts, and so on. so yes, the teachings on impermanence and interdependence can make things seem a little bit shall we say unmoored. you know we we're losing a little bit of our anchor to what we considered reality to be. And yes, it can, knowing that you are a stream of being and not a material soul, that can make you feel a little strange. It can actually make you feel a little bit lonely, a little lonely in your in your journey. But we do have companions. That's the good news. But in the end, I think knowing that we are a stream of being and that others are experiencing the world exactly the same way we are As continuous impermanence and change, continuous interdependence and change. Knowing that everybody is experiencing the world in the same way we are, actually, it can inform us uh, and create a sort of empathy or sympathy or kinship with other beings. We feel related to them. Campbell Carthurbache and his um Uh, rudimentary english he used to call this same same (laughs) in other words we are just like others same same we're just like others and because we're just like others the things that make us suffer make them suffer and so we feel a little bit like we're alone but we also are informed that everybody else is experiencing this world the same way we are, and we can kind of feel some kinship with our fellow travelers. So in this way, by understanding emptiness, not as some huge concept, but rather understanding it as emptiness and interdependence makes things a little bit easier. What this means is that the exterior world, the ex- the exterior world is impermanent and is empty of permanence, it is empty of ultimate reality. These things don't exist of themselves and by themselves, but only in relationship to other things. And also, this mind that we have, this stream of being, also is likewise impermanent and continuously changing. And as such, it can gradually, through the practices of Doing no harm, practicing virtue, and taming the mind, develop positive habits of self care and other care, and also come to know itself and be completely liberated from all confusion and know one's basic, clear, empty nature personally, like one on one. We can know our own mind ourselves. And so, uh, to me, I hope that this little talk has helped a little bit with understanding emptiness as impermanence and interdependence. But I still have one more thing to explain, and that is, knowing that everything is impermanent and interdependent, how should we be? How should we be in this world? The the great master uh, from the 20th and now 21st century, Kempo Sultram Jomso, he came and taught at Columbus KTC three times. And during his final visit, uh, I think that was somewhere around 2007. Uh, I'll have to check the the, the history to, to know for sure. He was asked this question because he, he was a specialist. Uh, he's not teaching now, but he is still living in a nunnery in uh, Nepal. When he was teaching, He used to talk about emptiness a lot. In fact, he wrote, um, I guess what you could call a a small time classic called Progressive Stages of Meditation on Emptiness, where he explains interdependence uh, interdependence and impermanence as a way of understanding the mind. So he's sort of an expert on this subject. So someone came up to the question microphone at the Columbus KTC and they asked him, they said, Rinpoche, how you understand everything, uh, but tell me, understanding emptiness, how should we act? What should we do? And Kimball Soltram said, well, compassion, of course. And As I reflected on his answer later, it occurred to me that he's absolutely right. Because love and compassion are the only things that make sense in the face of knowing that everything is impermanent and interdependent and not anchored, that practicing love and compassion toward ourselves and love and compassion toward others is really the only thing that makes sense in a world that is continuously changing and is impermanent so what we need to do is to we need to remember this and then work to grow our compassion and our love remember way back on the first page of my talk where i was talking about the the succinct the succinct statement of the Buddha's teachings if you want to study my teachings you don't have to study many teachings you only need to practice and study one teaching what is it it's love and compassion whoever possesses love and compassion has all of the qualities of the buddha in the palm of their hand so i find a great resonance of these two ideas Kimball Soltram says love and compassion are the only thing that makes sense because even if even though we as buddhists are studying and trying to understand impermanence and interdependence we're trying to understand these things think about what it's what it's like for others who haven't even thought about it and don't definitely don't understand it we have to have some compassion for them now this doesn't mean that we don't put criminals in jail and that we don't do what needs to be done to take care of ourselves and our families it doesn't mean that at all it means that we should do our best not to hate other people because that hatred actually influences our stream of being and makes us into something that we may not want to become because the Buddha's teachings on karma are real and what you do a lot you do a lot So I always tell people that if they have habits that they want to change that because of impermanence and interdependence they can change those habits and because we are what we think, All that we are arises with our thoughts and with our thoughts, we make the world. That if you have a negative habit of of, uh, anger, perhaps, or impatience, perhaps, that you have to try to work on it at least just a little bit in order to gradually become more like the person you'd like to be. So love and compassion are the only response that makes sense in a world that is impermanent and changing. And how do we grow? our love and how do we grow our compassion we grow our love and compassion by uh by practice meditation practice one of the easiest meditation practices to do is quiet sitting meditation which we call shamata in sanskrit or we can also call it uh, shine in tibetan whichever it means Calm abiding. So, when we do calm abiding meditation, what we're doing is placing our attention on a single object. Often it's the breath, thinking uh, and following the breath with our attention as the breath comes in, as the breath goes out, and so on. And as the breath comes in and goes out, on the exhale, we can mentally count it in breath, out breath, mentally count one in-breath, out-breath, mentally count two, and so on. I tell people go to an easy number like seven or ten and then just go back and go to seven or ten again. And every time we notice that our attention is being taken away from the breath, something that happened yesterday or something we're concerned about happening tomorrow or maybe something is happening in the now that's causing us concern, we practice a technique called touch and let go. As we're watching the breath, if a thought distracts us into the past or into the future, we think uh, we we recognize that we've been distracted, we can even label the distraction thinking, we can let it go, and then consciously return our attention to the breath for a fresh start. And this actually is a form of training. You can grow, your love and compassion by first recognizing your thoughts as they are happening and exercising some control over those thoughts by letting them all go now we don't like save the good thoughts and get only discard the bad thoughts we discard every thought when we are first practicing calm abiding when we're first practicing shamatha or calm abiding meditation we let go of all thoughts good ones bad ones everything in between the reason we let go of all of them is because it's the the practice of meditation is honing something called mindfulness when we are mindful of what we are thinking and doing we are less apt to act selfishly we are more apt to act compassionately and wisely in any situation now this is not going to happen with one session of meditation. This is gonna be noticeable over days, weeks, months, and even years. But the practice of Shine or shamatha meditation, calm abiding, allows us to let go of thoughts. And in letting go of those thoughts, we establish mindfulness. So that can help us when we get to the second stage of meditation, which is compassion meditation. Compassion meditation, often called tong, T-O-N-G, len, L-E-N, in Tibetan. Tong len, tong means to send and len means to take. Sending and taking meditation is done by thinking as you breathe out, I send happiness and love to all beings. And on the in-breath, think I remove the suffering from all beings. Or you can even just imagine that you're giving away your own happiness on the outbreath and removing other people's suffering on the in-breath. And those of you who read Campbell Carter Ripache's book, Dharma Paths, will know that what he says to do when all that suffering comes to you, he said, imagine that it meets your pure motivation to benefit others, it dissolves into nothing and disappears. So doing compassion meditation over and over again not only hones your mindfulness and alertness, it also grows your loving and compassionate response. So you can become more loving and more compassionate by growing your love and compassion through shamatha, which calms the mind down, and tonglen, where we think purposefully about giving love on the outbreath and practicing compassion on the in-breath. Uh, by the way uh it, the uh, practice of tonglen uh, Kempo kimpalcarther in his book um, dharma path says that this practice should be done just for a short period of time uh, you can practice shamatha or calm abiding for a lot longer because it's um it's a slightly different technique and it doesn't use a visualization but in the compassion practice it's better he said to keep it short what i tell people is if you have a a small wrist uh, set of wrist beads or whatever, you can uh, in-breath, out-breath, move a bead, in-breath, out-breath, move a bead, in-breath, out-breath, move a bead. And that way you can be with and be attentive to your visualization as you're doing the practice and still only do it for a short time. And uh, this would be somewhere between two and five minutes of Tonglen. You can do Tonglen uh, several times, but they all need to be these short periods, especially at first, because it's very difficult to maintain. So, the practice of quiet sitting and the practice, this short practice of Tong grows our love and compassion. But there's another way to grow our love and compassion, and that's through the practice of mantra and visualization. One of the best known mantras is Om Mani Padme Hung. Om, O M. Mani, M-A-N-I, Padme, P-A-D-M-E, and Hum, H-U-M. Those of you who are familiar with uh, Tibetan spelling, it's Om Mani Peme Hom, which is a different pronunciation. Same mantra. And it basically means that we are honoring the one who holds the jewel and the lotus. Those of you who are familiar with uh, Tibetan iconography know that Avalokiteshvara or Chenrezig, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, is depicted holding a jewel in his hands. And in one outer hand, he's holding uh, a, a rosary. And in the other hand, he's holding a lotus flower. Right rosary, left lotus. So it's basically a way of saying Chenrezig's name, Om Mani Pei Mei or Om Mani Padme Hom reciting this mantra is very beneficial because calling upon the force of compassion because part of us really is Chen Rezi, part of us has the capacity of love and compassion that Chen Rezi has calling upon that and nurturing that is, is a really powerful way to grow our love and compassion and in fact um, we we can do this practice with a visualization which increases its benefit. And the benefit is increased if we can imagine that Chenrezig is present, either in front of us or over our head, and that we then imagine he blesses us and that we become him. There's a short meditation called Chenrezig for Beginners on my website, Lama Kathy L-A-M-A-K-A-T-H-Y dot net, N-E-T. You go to the uh, teachings page and you can click on chen rezi for beginners and learn this practice for yourself so by taking on i guess you could say by imagining for just a few minutes that we are chen rezi, the bodhisattva of compassion it's a powerful thing and at the very end we dissolve all of that into utter emptiness utter um impermanence and interdependence. Uh, We dissolve it into utter emptiness and let our mind rest comfortably in itself, kind of like resting comfortably in an easy chair at the end of a busy day. Learning how to let the mind be, how to let the mind rest within itself is a key factor in being able to understand emptiness, which is impermanence and interdependence within ourselves, within our own minds and see how our own minds are capable of change. And um, I think uh, what I will do is um, in the, uh, those of you who are watching on YouTube, by the way, could someone from YouTube say hi to me because I'm only seeing people from Facebook so far on my chat. So if there's anybody from YouTube, just type in a little comment, let me know you're there. Um, So before I get into questions, Uh, And I will put in, uh, I will be answering any questions that you have placed in chat. So if you have some questions, it's a good time to start thinking about them. And you can type them into chat and I'll answer them. But when this uh, talk is over, I will type into uh, chat uh, on, oh, thank you. I appreciate the, thank you from YouTube. Appreciate you guys. Um, I will uh, be able to type into chat on Facebook a verse. Uh, that was um, composed spontaneously by Kempel Soltram Jamso to describe the power of Chenrezig practice. And I think that it's a great way to uh, bring this talk to a conclusion today. Um, uh, the, uh, the talk um, is was titled, Finding Love in the Well of Emptiness. And how if we think about the, the Buddha's teaching on emptiness, sometimes we can get a little bit confused and a little discouraged. And, and it might disappoint us a bit to see that everything is uh, is impermanent. Uh, but if we recognize that we uh, have uh, an impermanent nature that's always changing, we can have hope that we can change our mind and become a Buddha eventually in our lifetime. And knowing that all beings have the potential to be Buddha, but are under the influence of confusion, this creates a feeling of sympathy, empathy, and kinship with other human beings, other beings, in fact, dogs, cats, birds, fish, bacteria. We can have a sense of compassion for all beings, knowing that they are subject to the same impermanence and interdependence that we are. And so in this way, the teachings on emptiness, whether you call them interdependence, impermanence, both, they help us create a feeling of kinship with other beings. And that is how we find love in the the well of emptiness. From emptiness, understanding, a proper understanding of emptiness can come a feeling of love and compassion, both for ourselves, as confused beings trying to uh, get by in this impermanent world, and other beings uh, also thinking about their suffering in this impermanent and changing world. And so um, I wanted to, um, uh, to say a couple of things about how I arrived at this title, because looking down that well can be a little scary until you realize That all beings are experiencing the same thing you are, and then you can feel kinship with them, and that is the uh, ignition point for love, compassion, and so on. So, uh, in questions, I've uh, uh, anyway, I'll I'll get to that. um, uh, I'll get to that. uh, Get to the questions in a moment. I see questions are starting to appear, so thank you very much. Uh, So, I'm going to uh, to conclude uh, this part of the talk. Give the verse that uh, Kempo Sultram Jamsö gave when he was asked to teach about the bodhisattva of compassion, uh, Avalokiteshvara or Chenrezig. And before I say the verse, it just occurred to me as I was saying these words: Isn't it interesting that um, the jumping-off point for talking about emptiness in this talk was to talk about the Heart Sutra, where Chenrezig, or Avalokiteshvara, with the Buddha's blessing and inspiration said, form is emptiness, emptiness is form, and so on. Isn't it interesting that the being who teaches the Heart Sutra that is then endorsed by the Buddha Shakyamuni who was meditating while Chenrezig was teaching it, isn't it interesting that the bodhisattva of compassion is teaching about emptiness. Isn't that interesting? Because if we understand emptiness, compassion is the result. We feel intense compassion. That's what my teacher told us. He said, if you ever realize the empty nature of mind and phenomena, he said, you're gonna be overwhelmed with a feeling of compassion for everyone who cannot see what you have seen. So um, I just thought I would mention that because I just find that really interesting. So here's the verse. Emptiness has compassion for a heart. This is the real chenrezi. The chenrezi with a face and arms is just a mere appearance. Use your practice of the merely apparent chenrezi to realize the true nature the true Chen I just love that verse. I, it's four lines and it's a really easy teaching to absorb. I'll type it into chat on Facebook. I'll find a way to put it in the description for this, uh, for this video on uh, the uh, Columbus uh, KTC YouTube page. And, uh, and I'll uh, put the verse there uh, in the description of the video. So uh, let's, let's go to some of the questions. Uh, one of the questions, uh, questioners is asking for uh, a review of the, uh, of the mantra again. Yeah, I did go through that a little fast. So let's go through it more slowly. The explanation of the mantra that I'm going to give is in Bokar Rinpoche's book, Chenrezig, Lord of Love. So if you want to read more about this explanation, I'm just going to give a brief summary of it. You can go to the book Chenrezig, Lord of Love, by Bokar Rinpoche, and read the whole thing. So, Om, he said, is an invocation invoking the the enlightened body of the of the Buddha, and Hum or Hung is invoking the awakened mind of the Buddha. So that leaves two other words, Mani and Padme, or Mani and Peme as it's pronounced in Tibetan. Mani means jewel, and Peime means lotus. So in iconography, Chenrezig is depicted as holding a jewel. Now, this jewel is not any jewel. It is a wish-fulfilling jewel. In uh, Asian legends, instead of a magic lamp that grants wishes, there's a magic jewel that, that grants wishes. And the iconography uses this idea of our mind being like a wish-fulfilling jewel. That can grant us every happiness once we realize fully realize mind's nature and become buddhas our mind then is like a wish-fulfilling jewel so that's uh that's what the jewel means and the lotus flower is actually symbolic in iconography of love and compassion so the um and he's also symbolic of the bodhisattva. Bodhi means awakening and sattva means the person who holds the mind of awakening. So bodhisattva, the mind of the person who holds a mind of awakening, is a person who lives in this confused world that the Buddha called samsara, or cyclic existence and suffering. The bodhisattva chooses to live in samsara, but isn't stained by living in samsara because of their awakening. And so they are like a lotus flower that is rooted in the mud, but blooms above the mud. So that's why the lotus flower is symbolic of love, compassion, and the bodhisattva who lives in this world but isn't stained by it. So. When we are saying Om Mani Pei Mei Hong, it's a way of saying Chen name and calling upon him and asking for his presence. So thanks for asking that question. I'm gonna go back now through the questions and and then start answering them. Let's see. Let's see what this person is saying. Uh, I like the advice on keeping compassion meditation short. It's not the easiest, but give it a short burst to try. Yes, definitely do that, because um, I think uh, that's that's I think Rinpoche, Kempo Kartho Rinpoche, when he taught this in Dharma Paths, I think he said to keep it short for that reason, because right now we we're just learning meditation. So our meditation is going to kind of be up and down and up and down and up and down. Some days it'll be easy to meditate. Other days it will not be easy to meditate. I mean, the general trend is up, but you know, but it'll be up and down on any given day. So because of that, it's better to keep it short so that it's short and genuine rather than long and and uh, and you know, sort of um, filled with potholes where we just can't pay attention. And um, and so one of, uh, Kempokarth Rinpoche's, one of his pieces of advice was he said, always leave your meditation on good terms. So he said, "Don't don't meditate so long that you are become uh, burdened by it or overwhelmed by it." He said, "If if it's becoming a burden to you, you, have actually have to cut it back until it's more manageable." And so these days, I tell people, "Don't worry about um, lengthening your tonglen or your compassion meditation practice. Just don't worry about it. Just do. If you want to do more of it, just do a second short session, and that will keep it fresh." So thanks for that. Let's see. Uh, Let's see this question. I've read that no thought meditation is a sign of laziness in meditation, not a sign of touching upon emptiness. Is there an experience of emptiness that reflects the space between thought or is that a misunderstanding of emptiness? I'm going to I'm going to try to to work on this. because there's several things in this, uh, there's several points in the question, and because in because English is such an imperfect language, we tend to use the same words for different things, and it's and it's very difficult. So the first thing you say is, "I've read that no thought meditation is a sign of laziness," and I think I know what you mean, because there is. Um, uh, Kempo Carthor and Bache used to describe it as a state that is uh, stuporous, S T U P O R O U S. I think that's, I'm spelling that right. Oh my gosh, my English teacher would just have a fit. That is uh, stuporous, meaning that we are uh, halfway between sleeping and being awake and not really being attentive at all. The best meditation should have both mindfulness and alertness. Mindfulness means that we know that we are meditating and we're maintaining the technique of the meditation, that's mindfulness, and alertness alerts us to when we have wandered from the object of meditation. So yes, I would say that no thought meditation can be a sign of laziness, that we have forgotten the technique. It's I mean, it's not that we're bad people, it's just that we forget the technique sometimes, or fail to apply the technique because we're tired. Hence, Kempo Rinpoche saying, leave your meditation on good terms. Don't try to force yourself to meditate for so long that you get stuporous and tired. So in any case, then uh, and then uh, the uh, the second part of the question is, is there an experience of emptiness that reflects the space between thought or is that a misunderstanding of emptiness? Um, The the whole idea of the mind being uh, a stream of being and that we can uh, talk about it intellectually, but we actually need to experience it in meditation. I think that this can happen from time to time. Uh, In uh, Tranga Rinpoche's uh, book about the aspiration uh, for mahamudra of definitive meaning by the third Karmapa, in his book, he says that there are three basic experiences that can happen to a person doing shamatha meditation, three basic things. One is uh, well-being or bliss. Second is clarity. And the third is non-thought. So uh, bliss is a feeling of well-being. Either it's physical well-being where you feel like, hey, I feel pretty good. I could sit here for as long as I want. That that would be a blissful feeling. Or it could be a feeling of happiness. The second one describes clarity where you feel as though your perceptions uh, and your mind are very clear and sharp. And the third is non-thought. And I believe that this non-thought is what you're talking about in this experience of emptiness that reflects the space between thoughts. Because Khenpo Karthar Rinpoche has said that when one thought has ended, before the next one begins, there is a space. And some people call it the gap. Um, that was what Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche used to call it, the gap. And it's basically a non-conceptual awareness. It's awareness in that it's not sleeping, it's clear, and it's aware, but there's no conscious thought happening in it, and in fact, there may not even be any conceptualization happening in it, and so this moment of non-conceptuality will happen for us occasionally in meditation. What Kempo and Rinpoche said himself when people would ask him about these three experiences, bliss, clarity, and non-thought, which I, I think I did the other way before. Sorry about that. Bliss, clarity, and non-thought, he said, the way you should respond to these experiences in your meditation is to let go of them and to return to the technique of watching the breath or doing whatever technique you're doing in meditation he said if you begin to pay attention to the experience and get attached to the pleasantness of the bliss or the clarity or the non-thought then he said you're actually building an egocentric meditation that's a, 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 that is all about i'm having this great experience i want it to last forever so you're binding yourself to the experience and actually, letting your and letting your meditation collapse, basically. And so, uh, so I think that uh, this, uh, I think that what you're referring to in the second part of your question, is this experience of emptiness that uh, reflects the space uh, between thought. And uh, and these experiences, by the way, can happen only for a few seconds, and never happen again. So I do want to, to repeat this. Kempokarth Rimbache warned people a lot about becoming attached to their experiences in meditation. You know, don't write books about your meditation experiences. Don't tell your, all your friends about your meditation experiences. Let go of them and return to the technique because otherwise we run the risk of having our meditation be overwhelmed by self-fixation, like I did a special thing and so on. And you can talk to a meditation teacher, and that will help. Uh, that will help uh, you to be able to let go of your experiences in uh, in meditation. So that eventually, what Rinpoché said was, he says, if you let go of your meditation experiences, he said, even then, even if they happen only once and never happen again, you'll be fine. He said because he said some experiences. He said this, the experiences that arise in meditation are born from your uh, good karma from previous lifetimes and uh, because they're born from your good karma of previous lifetimes and most of our good karma was accumulated with some kind of selfish stain on it then uh then it will bloom one day and die the, and die the next in other words it will be like a day lily blooming and then dying and so you'll have the experience of, of goodness in your meditation. You'll have this bliss, clarity, or non-thought. It'll arise for a few seconds, then it'll fall apart. Then you'll get discouraged and you'll think meditation is no good because it only happened once. Rinpoche said, if you let go of your attachment to experiences and merely continue meditating, he said, wisdom and realization will grow uh, within you. I see. Oh, my gosh. I never intended to go for a whole hour. My goodness. All right. Let's go to the next question and see if we can get this in. Does our stream of being accumulate merit and karma? It's not a permanent thing, but it is something that makes choices and has consequences. So it does have some staying power, even though it is not permanent. Yes, that is that is my understanding. If this is like the 100% agreed upon position of all Buddhists, I can't tell you. But I, I learned quite a bit about this stream of being from uh, Lake Rinpoche's wonderful book. And the title of this book is called Karma, what it is, what it isn't and why it matters. And I'm going to be doing a book study on this probably November, December. And so we can all read and come to some of these interesting conclusions ourselves. So um he, it, it, and based on everything I've heard from Kempo Carthor Rinpoche, this stream of being, uh, it does have cohesion. It's kind of, it sticks together. And he says it's mainly stuck together with habit, which is why, I mean, this is for me. I took that to mean, oh, great. If it's stuck together with habit, that means right now we have confused habits and we're learning unconfused habits and we're learning habits of awakening and love and compassion. You see what I'm saying? So we're learning uh, good habits that will eventually hold us together cohesively as a bodhisattva and so on. So yes, uh, in the confusion mode, this is what Kempo Kartha Rinpoche said to us when we were in three-year retreat. He said, your mind is in confusion mode right now. So yes, karma is effective, uh, is effective and you're gonna continue accumulating karma and lots of it until you become Buddhas. And so, uh, so, yes, we still make choices and we still accumulate karma and so on and uh and and, but we're changing over and over and over, so we'll learn more about the uh the actual uh, mechanisms of all of this later on, and by the way, one time I asked um kempelkarthur Rimpaché. um uh, one time I asked Keblekarhur Rinpoche about um about the the practices and and how they progress one to another and he said he said just continue practicing just continue practicing and gradually you'll meet teachers who will guide you in these practices and they'll help you to realize your buddha nature and uh and so i'm 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 really sorry i have there's one more question uh, let's see. This question is, uh, speaking of bliss, I'm interested in learning more about the jhanas. OK, uh, the um, the what they call the four Brahma Biharas Um the, I do not know enough about them to talk about them authoritatively um, from the Tibetan side. It's very interesting. They don't uh, do direct cultivation of them as they do in other traditions of Buddhism. They let you fall into them. Uh, over over time and that that's why you have a meditation teacher you have to have a teacher in order to help you navigate the the uh, the whole process of deepening your meditation so uh uh, i I think that's all i can say about it for today but happy to talk to you about it uh off uh, off list so you can send me a message on uh, facebook messenger and i'll uh, try and get through uh, with you that way so uh we have to call this to a close today. I can't believe it. It's uh it's been a long time since I talked this long. Uh hope you're still with me. I see we still have a few stalwart souls there. And uh, I want to thank all of you uh for paying uh such good attention and to uh, be be uh, put in your um energy into the Columbus KTC and uh coming to these talks. And uh, I just have so much to be grateful for, and I have uh, so much to be grateful to all of you for. And the Kempokarth Rinpoche was asked once, well, what do we do to thank our teachers? And he said, practice. The best thing you can do to repay the kindness of your teachers is to practice meditation. So I'm going to dedicate the merit here and wish all of you great practice. I'll recite a short dedication prayer in English. Through this merit, may all achieve the omniscience of Buddhahood, May it defeat our common enemy, wrongdoing. From the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death. From the ocean of samsara, may we free all beings. May we free all beings. May we free all beings. Thanks, everyone. You're amazing. Uh, and Omani hum. Take care, and I'll see you soon.
0: Thank you for joining us for this week's Dharma Talk. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. To learn more about the Columbus Karma Karmateksum Choling or to donate to support our Dharma Talk series, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music for the podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts at tamdingarts.com. Please join us again next week for another Dharma Talk.